Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2? In Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, I'd like you to read along with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So... All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, that is, have intimate relations with her, until she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Santa Claus is not the king of Christmas. Jesus Christ is the undisputed king of kings, lord of lords, and king of Christmas. And i got to tell you, Santa Claus knows that. One of my favorite little figurines is a picture, a statuette of Santa Claus with his hat off, bowing before the manger of Jesus, worshiping. You see, there was a guy named Nicholas who grew up in the province of Myra, in the county of Lycia, in the ancient country of Anatolia, which is modern-day Asia Minor, well, actually ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And young Nicholas came to a relationship with Christ at a young age and started giving away a lot of his wealth. Around the 4th century A.D., young Nicholas joined the ministry and became where history intersects him in the most famous way is when he appeared in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea and fought vigorously for the doctrine of the Trinity against a guy by the name of Arius, who was a heretic, claiming that there was no Trinity. Nicholas was known for his compassion and on three separate occasions threw money through a window of poor people's houses so that The daughters of those homes would not have to engage in prostitution and would have plenty of dowry for a future marriage. 
That is Nicholas, who became Saint Nicholas, who became known by the Dutch as Sinterklaas, who in America is called Santa Claus. You see, it's Christ who's the King of Christmas, and Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, worshipped at the feet of Jesus. That's why I say he knows it. Somebody sent me this. It's called Why Jesus is Better Than Santa Claus. And, of course, this is the fictitious Santa Claus. Santa lives at the North Pole. Jesus is everywhere. Santa comes but once a year. Jesus is an ever-present help. Santa fills your stockings with goodies. Jesus supplies all your needs. Santa comes down your chimney uninvited. Jesus stands at your door and knocks. And then he enters your heart when invited. You've got to wait in line to see Santa. Jesus is as close as the mention of his name. Santa lets you sit on his lap. Jesus lets you rest in his arms. Santa doesn't know your name, but says, Hi, little boy. Hi, little girl. What's your name? Jesus knew our name before we did. Not only does he know our name, he knows our address, he knows our history, he knows our future. And he knows how many hairs are on our heads. Santa has a belly like a bowl full of jelly. Jesus has a heart full of love. All Santa can do is offer ho, ho, ho. Jesus offers hope, hope, hope. Santa says, you better not cry. Jesus says, cast all your cares on me. I care for you. Santa's little helpers make toys. Jesus makes new life, mends wounded hearts, repairs broken homes, and builds mansions. Santa may make you chuckle. Jesus gives you joy. Santa puts gifts under your tree. Jesus became our gift and died on the tree. It was Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 who said of Jesus Christ, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It was the gift of his son. The best Christmas present God gave to man was his son. I've had you turn to Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 because we're going to look at four names for this gift, the gift of God's son to the world. Billy Sunday said there's 256 names for Jesus Christ in the Bible, and that's because there's not one single name that can capture his essence. So we're going to look at four names for God's gift. The name of this message is the gift that keeps on giving. The four titles are pretty easy to spot as you go through the text that we just read. The first one is Christ. The second one is Jesus. The third is Emmanuel. And the fourth is king. So Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, king. Four names for this gift. Let's begin with the first one. But I'm going to take you back to verse 16, where it says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David till the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Then look at Matthew chapter 2 verse 4. 
when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, let's get something straight. Christ is not his last name. Even though you'll hear some people say, Jesus H. Christ, Christ is not his last name. It wasn't the Christ family at P.O. Box 777, Nazareth, Israel. Christ was not a name. It was really a title for him. Christos is the Greek word. It means God's anointed one. And Christos is the Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, God's anointed one. It's what the Jews always looked forward to and hoped for. They wanted a Messiah. By the way, the original term Mashiach, Messiah, means to rub or to smear or to pour. Because in the inaugurating ceremonies of the kings and the priests, they would rub or smear or pour olive oil to anoint that one for service. So the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. The Jews have always longed for, waited for, their deliverer, their Messiah. A common Jewish prayer, said in ancient times, still said by many pious Jewish followers, is this. I believe in the coming of Messiah, and even though he tarries, yet I will wait for him every coming day. So they've always looked for the Messiah. And many Jews who don't know Christ are still looking for Messiah. However, did you know that just prior to Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem, this messianic fervor and expectancy was at its height? Listen to what Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver writes in his book, The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. Quote, Prior to the first century of the Christian era, messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. When Jesus came into Galilee, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, He was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. Listen to this last statement. The Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century of the Christian era. Now, there's a reason for that. Because the history of the Jews has been one of great and continued oppression. They'd been beat up and slaves by so many other people, all the way back from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Seleucids to the Ptolemies to the Greeks. And at the point of the New Testament, the Romans had occupied the land and the Jews were slaves of the Romans. The Jews knew that and so they longed for the deliverer, the Messiah, is going to come. Now, there's a lot of predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Um, you could do a series that would last at least a year if we were to cover them all. I want to give you one because it's, to me, most fascinating. There's this prediction in Genesis chapter 49, second to the last chapter in that first book of the Bible. 
It's the time when Jacob gets his sons all around him on his deathbed and he speaks to each one of them and prophesies over them, giving them their future. When he gets to his son, Judah, he says this. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the expectation of the peoples. You say, what does that mean? I'll tell you what the rabbis said it meant. Well, first of all, the idea of a scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the tribal banner, the tribal identity that marks their authority to execute the laws of Moses, even the right of capital punishment. That's the way they interpret it. So the scepter, the right of identity that gives them sovereign authority, shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, every rabbi in ancient times said that's a a word for the Messiah because the word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. So if you were to ask a rabbi on the streets of ancient Jerusalem before the Messiah would come, he would tell you what that means is that the Messiah won't come until that is broken. And when that is broken, that sovereign identity of Judah, then the Messiah is going to come. It won't happen before that. Well, we have a problem Because Rome invaded that land and took away the scepter from Judah, the right for Judah to enact capital punishment against temple infractions. The Talmud, the Jewish writings tell us on the day that happened, the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling elders of the Jews, marched through the city of Jerusalem with ashes on their heads, sackcloth on their bodies, and they said, the scepter has departed from Judah. But Messiah, Shiloh, has not come. They were bemoaning the fact that God didn't keep his promise to them. Little did they know, while they're having their little parade, that five miles south in Bethlehem, a baby is being born, who is Messiah, who is Shiloh, who is the one that they would hang all of their hopes on. The prophecy was fulfilled. What does that mean to us? means that just as he would be called and is called Christ, Messiah, the one who brings hope to a hopeless world, our hopes are hung on him. Now we come to the second term that he's called in this text, and it's the most familiar one. We know him by the name Jesus. He is called that. The birth, verse 18, of Jesus Christ was as follows, and it tells us about the angel that made the announcement to Joseph. And look at verse 21. And she, that is Mary, shall bring forth a son. And you, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 25, he did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, isn't it great to have an angel come and tell you what the name of your baby is to be? It makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? You don't have to have an argument about what the name of the baby is going to be. You don't have to buy the book, A Thousand and One Names for Your Jewish Baby. The angel said, Jesus. What are you going to call him? Jesus. He was called Jesus. By the way, when my son Nathan was born and Lenny and I were discussing, what are we going to name him? And I had my ideas and she had her ideas and... So we sort of waited, and she had that long delivery, and she was tired at the end of it. And finally, when 
he was born. And her sister Suzanne called and says, well, what are you going to name him? And she was tired. She says, I don't know. And she turned to me and said, what are we going to call him? And I immediately was ready. I said, Nathan. I seized the moment. It was an opportunity. And that's been his name. Now, Jesus is not an unusual name. 2,000 years ago, there were probably three or four kids named Jesus on the block in Nazareth. It was a very common Jewish name, which I think is marvelous. It speaks of his, his approachability, his humanity. I noticed something about us evangelical Christians. We have no problem defending the divinity of Christ. We're a little bit weak getting our minds around the humanity of Jesus, that he was fully human at the same time being fully God. By the way, the first heresy in the church was not a denial of his deity, but a denial of his humanity. It was called Gnosticism. Well, the name Jesus, a significant name. Jesus is the English form of the Hebrew Yeshua, which is the shortened form for the proper name Yahoshua, which means God is salvation. And it wasn't just a name that sounded good. It wasn't the angel going, I like the ring of Yeshua. It had a special meaning. And here was the meaning, verse 21. You'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This baby was on a mission from God. And the name was very particular to his mission. I read a little uh, Associated Press article, newspaper out of England, um, gave it to the AP, and they put it on the wire. It seems that a young couple in England named their new daughter... 139 names. You know, some parents do two, some go crazy, do five or six. 139 names. Now, she goes by the name Tracy, but her official name is something like, here's a few of the names, Tracy, Lisa, Tammy, Joy, Samantha, Christine, 139. And they asked Dad, why did you do that? And his answer was simple. He said, I just wanted to give her something for when she grows up i got to tell you something. There's no meaning behind the names that that dad gave the daughter. It was all about him expressing his novel ideas. But those are her names. Jesus, however, had a name that befitted his purpose for coming to save people from their sins. When that baby came in the temple sometime later, There was an old man who saw. His name was Simeon. And as Mary and that young man, Joseph, were walking forward to where Simeon was, and they were holding that little baby in his arms, the Spirit revealed to Simeon who this was. It was so dramatic to him that he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he prayed. He said, I can die now. I can die now, Lord, because my eyes have seen your what? Salvation which will be to all peoples. Simeon saw beyond the birth to the death of that boy. He knew why he came. This is, your, this is what you talked about. This is the Messiah who would offer salvation. And at that moment, he looked at Mary and he said, a sword is going to pierce your soul also. Speaking of the emotional pain she would feel standing before the foot of the cross, seeing her boy die. He will save his people from their sins. 
I've got to tell you something, and I want you to listen to this very carefully. There is no salvation in the birth of this boy, Jesus. Even though that's the most incredible miracle ever, a virgin birth. There's no salvation in that. There's nothing efficacious in the miraculous birth of Jesus to this earth. There is no salvation in the perfect life of Jesus, as perfect and as monumental as that life was. There's no salvation in the teachings of Jesus Christ. There is only salvation in the shed blood and death and resurrection of that boy. Because that's the only way he could save his people from their sins. Reminds me of a story of a family who were out one Christmas Eve looking at Christmas lights. They were doing what a lot of us do. We want to see the displays. And they knew that one church had a live nativity set. But a lot of churches do that. So they drove into the live nativity set. There was a line of people. And when they got up to it, Grandma said, Isn't that beautiful? Look, there's Mary and Joseph and the animals. And look, the baby Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And uh, the family enjoyed it. But there was one honest little girl among them who said, yeah, it's nice, Grandma. Only one thing bothers me. Isn't baby Jesus ever going to grow up? He said he's the same size he was last year. Isn't that precious? She's on to something. You know what? Most people don't want Jesus to grow up. They like baby Jesus in a manger at Christmas time. Oh, it's so cute. But don't let him grow up. Whatever you do, don't let him grow up. Because when he grows up, he starts making demands on people. He starts saying crazy things like, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to the kingdom of heaven unless he comes through me. When that baby grows up, he goes to a cross. And he sheds his blood for the sin of the world, declaring it's the only way. So keep him nice and packaged and predictable and in a manger. But he didn't come for that. He came to be Messiah. He came to be Jesus who would save his people from their sins. Look at the third name in verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, that is Isaiah, saying, this is Isaiah 7, and he's quoting it. Behold, which is a great old Bible word for, hey, check it out. So, hey, check it out. The virgin shall be with child. It's something to check out. A virgin shall be pregnant and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Some of you will remember that this prophecy was given by Isaiah 600 years before Jesus was ever born, which means Christmas began way before Christmas began, didn't it? In the mind of God, it was always prescribed and programmed to be this way. His name will be called Emmanuel. That's a promise. It's a prediction of incarnate deity. It's a prediction that God himself would be born into this world. Because notice it says, the virgin... The virgin shall be with child and bear a son. One of the things that makes Jesus different was his mom was a virgin. He was virgin born. Larry King 
we all know who he is, Larry King Live, a great uh, interviewer on CNN. Uh, he's Jewish. And he said if he could have one interview with Jesus Christ, he'd ask him one question. He's, he would say, is it true that you are born of a virgin? The reason King says that is says because whatever the answer is changes or reinforces the whole world. A virgin will bear a son. Now, for you who are theological students, let me just add a footnote here. Liberal scholars attack the virgin birth of Christ for this reason. Well, for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is linguistically. In Isaiah chapter 7, um, where the prediction is a virgin shall give birth to a son, they will point out that the Hebrew word is alma. Alma can be translated virgin, but often is translated as a young woman. So they'll say, look, it's not a virgin birth. It's not a big deal. Uh, A young woman's going to have a baby. The reason I have a problem with that is twofold. Number one, because right before that it says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Let me ask you a question. What kind of a sign is it for a young woman to get pregnant and have a kid? Is that a big sign? Doesn't that happen like all the time, every day? Wow, a sign from God. What? A girl got pregnant. That happens all the time. But you want a sign from God, here's a woman who never touched a man. She's a virgin. She's pregnant. Now that's a sign. That fits the context. Not only that, but years later, when the Greek scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, translated the Hebrew into the Greek, it's called the Septuagint version, they chose the word that would best fit the intent of the author, and it was the Greek word parthenos. Behold, a parthenos shall bear a child. And that in Greek can only mean a virgin, not a young woman. They understood it. And that's the way it's translated. Well, here's the point. Here's the point. You'll call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus Christ was and is God. Isaiah the prophet, two chapters later, Isaiah chapter 9, gave another prophecy. He said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be upon his shoulders, upon the throne of David to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from this time forth, even forevermore. That's what that child's going to be called, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And Jesus didn't have a problem with that. And some people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, really? Can I ask you what Bible you're reading from? Because the Bible I read from, he said it all the time. I can think of one instance when Thomas, after the resurrection, fell before his feet and said to Jesus, My Lord and my what? God. Jesus didn't go, Oh, no, can't say that. He accepted his worship. The second time is when those four guys let their buddy through the roof because he was paralyzed and He was brought there in Capernaum, and Jesus looked at him, and the first thing he said to him is, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. You remember what the Jewish rulers said who were sitting around him? They said, You can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. Duh. That was the whole point. God just did. 
John chapter 5 and John chapter 8, Jesus says much the same thing. He said to the rulers, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the term ego eimi. I am that eternal construct of timelessness and transcendence. That's who I am. And the enemies of Jesus understood this because in John chapter 8, when they picked up stones to throw at him, he said, I've done a lot of good works. Which good work are you going to stone me for? And they said, not for a good work, but because you being a man are continually making yourself out to be God. So even the enemies of Christ understood his claims. Let's get real. If Jesus is not God, he certainly at least deserves an Academy Award because he thought he was, said he was, and proved he was by what he did. That's why the great scholar C.S. Lewis said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can kill him for being a demon, or you can fall at his feet and worship him as God. But none of this nonsense, he said, about calling him just a good moral teacher and example, for he has not left this option open to us. So he will be Emmanuel, that is God with us. Now, the, the name Emmanuel, it's not, it's not a name that was ever given to him. They didn't stop him on the street and go, excuse me, a Mr. Emmanuel. They called him Jesus. That was his name. His title was the Christ. Emmanuel was a description of his character. It's, it's that God came incognito, left the glories of heaven, came to this earth as fully God and fully man and walked among us. By the way, talk about a cross-cultural experience. I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country and after two or three weeks you get a little weary of being there. Things aren't like America. Uh, they don't drive the same. The food isn't the same. You start wanting in and out burgers again and it's tough. There's no Krispy Kremes there. It's hard. Think of living in heaven forever and coming here. And I'm not talking Orange County. I'm talking a stable in Bethlehem and growing up in Nazareth. That's culture shock. Now, why do you do it? Because he's God with us, experiencing what we experience, suffering like we suffer, relating to us as we need to be related to. One of my favorite stories is that of a Persian emperor named Shah Abbas who loved to dress in peasants' clothes and walk among the people. He did that one time. And he went to the lowest person in his palace who was a servant tending the palace furnace. And he sat there in rags. This is the king. Struck up a conversation with the guy. Eventually, the guy befriended him and gave him some of his bread and water, his meager lunch. That led to many more visits And a tender friendship sprang out of that. And they began to love each other and share secrets, except that he was the king. One day, finally, he broke the news. He revealed, I am the Shah. I did this because I'm sort of tired of the pageantry. And the Shah said to that poverty-stricken servant, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll make you rich. I'll make you famous. I'll give you a city. The man said, I don't want anything. The Shah said, don't you understand who I am and what I can do for you? He said, I don't want anything. In fact, he said this, yes, my Lord, I understand. But what you have done to leave your glorious surroundings to sit with me in this dark place to partake of my coarse fare and to care if my heart is glad or sorry on others, you may bestow riches. But to me, you have given 
yourself. God with us. What if God was never with us? What if he decided, I'm going to stay in heaven. I'm not going to fool with you guys. How could he relate to us? How could it be when you pray for God to say, I understand. He's in an ivory tower. He's in heaven. But for him to touch the feelings of our infirmities, God with us. Wow. There's a fourth and final name, and we'll close with this. It's the term king that is given to him. In verse 1 of chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, he's called the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. You know why Herod was troubled? For two reasons. Number one, because they called him the king of the Jews. That was his title. Number two, because of who these wise guys were. The wise men are called the Magi. And uh, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that these guys were a priestly caste of the Medes who worked and lived in Babylon, 500 miles away. They came 500 miles following some um, astronomical wonder and came to Bethlehem. And they're very innocently going, hey, where's the king? He's thinking, I'm the king. No, the king that's been born. We're going to worship him. So this group of very impressive magi, by the way, the magi were tied to setting and regulating ancient laws. They were very influential in the political judicial system. Our word magistrate comes from the word magi. And uh, their rulings were called the laws of the Medes and the Persians. These guys were king makers. These guys were heavyweights. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's policy when he conquered a territory to get the finest young men, of whom Daniel was one of them in Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel interpreted his dream and became the head over the magi, the magistrates in the court. Which leads me to the reason they came. We might ask, how did these guys 500 miles away in Babylon, Medo-Persia, come all the way to Bethlehem? I think because Daniel tipped them off. Years and years before, he probably told the rest of the Magi, the rest of the guys in the court, that a Messiah is coming. Here's the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, Isaiah chapter 9, maybe Numbers 13, I think it's 13, where it says, a star shall appear out of Jacob. And they put all of those things together in Daniel's prophecy, and they had come to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. No wonder Herod was so shaken because of who they were. So, four names for this incredible gift. He's Christ, God's anointed one. He's Jesus, God's anointed one to save you if you let him. He's Emmanuel, God's anointed one to abide with you as friend. And he's king. God's anointed one to rule your life if you let him do that. So here's the package, Jesus. You open up the package and you find hope, salvation, friendship, and direction. So it's not a bad deal. It's a package deal. But interesting thing about a gift, you have to receive it or it's not really a gift. 
If you don't take the package and open it up for yourself and make it your own, it just sits there all year long. And so God's gift to you is Jesus. Don't be like most Americans who every year put up the tinsel, the lights, the ornaments, even the manger, but they haven't personally opened the gift of God's salvation to them and direction over their life. A teacher from a university gave me something called Santa's Dilemma. Listen to this poem. It was the night before Christmas and Santa's a wreck. How to live in a world that's politically correct. His workers no longer answered to elves. Vertically challenged, they were calling themselves. And people had started to call for the cops when they heard the sled noises on their rooftops. And as for the gifts, why, he'd never a notion that making a choice could cause such commotion. Nothing of leather, nothing of fur, which meant nothing for him and nothing for her. Nothing that might be construed to pollute, nothing to aim, nothing to shoot, nothing that clamored or made lots of noise, nothing just for girls or just for the boys, nothing that claimed to be gender-specific, nothing that's warlike or non-pacific, no baseball, no football. Someone could get hurt. Beside, playing sports exposed kids to dirt. Dolls were said to be sexist and should be passe, and Xbox would just rot your brain all away. So Santa just stood there, disheveled, perplexed. He just couldn't figure out what to do next. He tried to be merry, tried to be gay. But you got to be careful with that word today. <laughs> His sack was quite empty, limp to the ground. Nothing acceptable was to be found. Something special was needed, a gift that he might give to all without angering the left or the right, every ethnicity and every hue, everyone everywhere, and yes, even you. So here is the gift, its price beyond worth, Jesus, the Savior, who came to this earth. That's God's gift. And Nicholas of Myra knew he was God's greatest gift. Do you? Think of all the people that worship that fat man in the red suit this year, not knowing that that fat man in the red suit was a real guy who worshiped Christ, the King of Christmas. So I'm just going to say, what would Santa do? I know what he would do. He'd take the hat off and bow before the king. Will you? You.